Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, let's return once again to the book of Genesis and to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. And if you've been worshiping with us, uh, you know that we have been in a series of expositions on this primeval or primordial history. It's so foundational for everything else in the Bible and uh, foundations of Christian theology. And today, God willing, we're going to complete this uh, study of Genesis 1 through 11. And God willing, next Lord's Day, we're going to start an exposition of the book of 1 John. And then eventually we'll come back to Genesis and pick it up in in Genesis 12. Uh, But for today, we're in Genesis 11. We're going to look at the entirety of the chapter, but I'm just going to read a few select portions of it from verses 1 through 9, beginning at verse 10 and verses 27 through 32. Let me invite you as you're able, let's stand together in honor of the reading and hearing of God's Word. Again, I'm reading from Genesis 11, beginning in verse 1, wherein Moses faithfully recorded. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they, all have, and, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem. And now verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of his word, and let us join together in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit so that we might see uh, that pathway that is before us and walk according to thy will and thy ways. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, if you have ever traveled through, or especially if you have ever lived for any amount of time in a foreign land where people do not speak your native tongue, then you know firsthand 
the reality and the frustrations of the language barrier. And I think I've told a number of you many times of how when we went to live in Hungary and we knew almost no Hungarian and very few people in those days right after the fall of communism spoke English, um, how difficult it was to do the most basic things. To go, we had to literally go into stores and just point at things. And we didn't know the metric system. And when we were asked for a kilo of bread, we didn't know if we were getting half a loaf or a truck full. Uh, but the, the language barrier was there. A nation's language is one of its greatest markers of its identity. You know you are in a different place and among a different people because they speak a language that is alien to you. One of the, the crazy things about being in Hungary at that time too, still today, if you're in the capital city, if you can get in your car or on a train and you can go in any direction, driving just a couple of hours and you move outside of that small country and you're in another country and they speak a completely different language. You could be in Budapest and you could drive uh, to the west a couple hours and you're in Austria and you're speaking German. You can drive to the north and you're in Slovakia and you're speaking Slovak. You can drive a little bit to the northeast and you're in the Ukraine and they're speaking Ukrainian. You can drive to the east and they're speaking Romanian. You can drive south and they're speaking Slovenian or uh, southeast uh, Serbo-Croatian. And uh, it's hard to fathom, because we live in this country that's fairly monolithic, but in many places in the world, just to go a couple of hours away from where you live, you're surrounded by a different people group that speak a completely different language. And today we learn about that. We learn how did that come to be? How did that come about? Even more foundational, to the fact that all these nations have these different languages is, if we contemplate it, the uniqueness of language itself. Language is part of being human. Yes, there are other creatures that can communicate and make sounds on the simplest levels, but only human beings have developed language, speech, the ability to read and write, to create prose and poetry, to, to sing. Think, think about how crazy singing is. What a crazy phenomenon. We just did it this morning. We, we raised our voices, and it wasn't our speaking voices. It was our singing voices. And we were communicating to one another. We were communicating to God. We might use our tongues to lament our circumstances, to complain. We might use our tongues to give thanks and praise to God. And sadly, we all know that in this fallen world, we might also use our tongues and our language in sinful and ungodly ways. Through the ungodly things we say to our fellow men, Sadly, sometimes to the, those who are nearest and dearest, our family members, our loved ones, when we're unkind with our language, and we can even use those tongues to curse God. As James 3.10 puts it, out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. Genesis 11 tells us something about that, how men use their tongues in a fallen world. In Genesis 10, the chapter we just looked at last Lord's Day, it described what we call the table of the nations. How that the various nations or people groups emerged from the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we saw those 70 nations that were established. Genesis 11 now describes how those nations or people groups became further divided from one another, not just geographically, but also by virtue of their distinct languages. Moses, the author of Genesis, knew when he wrote Genesis 10 what was going to 
be described in Genesis 11, and he even, as we noted last week, anticipates it as he describes the descendants of Japheth, Ham, and Shem. At the, each, at the end of each one of the listings of their descendants, he makes a note of how they became divided according to their tongues or according to their languages. And so if you look at, at chapter 10 and verse 5, right at the end it says, everyone after his tongue, after their families in their nations. And likewise, if you look at verse 20, after their tongues and their countries and in their nations. And then finally in verse 31 of Shem, it says, after their tongues and their lands, after their nations. And so while Moses was writing Genesis 10, recording that history, he, he was anticipating what was going to be described in Genesis 11. Also in Genesis 11, it will describe how this division comes about. As a result of man's pride, of his arrogating to himself the place of God, of putting himself in heaven. And for this reason, God did justly humble him and brought all mankind into a further state of confusion. But just as God showed mercy at the time of the flood, he would have been justified to wipe out all creation, all humanity, and have started with a blank slate. But at the time of the flood, he showed mercy on fallen man and kept and preserved a remnant. So we will find out that at the time of the Tower of Babel that we look at today in Genesis 11, that God will likewise show mercy because this chapter will end with a description, a further description of the line of Shem, and it will extend through a man named Terah, and then through him to a person named Abram, who will later be called Abraham, and it will be through this line, through Shem to Abraham, that God will raise up a man with whom he will forge a covenant and he will promise that man that through him and through his seed, all nations, all those nations described in Genesis 10, that all nations will be blessed through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come through the line of Shem and through Abraham as the seed of Abraham. At the times when men show themselves most miserable, God shows himself most merciful. Praise God. At the times that men show themselves most miserable, God shows himself most merciful. Well, let's turn and let's look at our passage today. Genesis 11, it's a, it's a big chunk of scripture and hopefully we will be able to look at it in a in a, a, a way that covers the material. But we can divide our text into two main parts. First of all, there's verses 1 through 9. And this is the description of the Tower of Babel. We spend quite a bit of time on this. And then the, the second part of our text is a tracing of this line from whom the Messiah eventually will come and it's tracing the line from Shem to Abram or Abraham, and that's in verses 10 through 32. So let's look at the two parts of our text, and we start in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, which is the account of the so-called Tower of Babel, as it is called. And so uh, we have seen, have we not, that according to this inerrant account, that all humanity comes from the three sons of Noah who were upon the ark. And so uh, they had been preserved by God, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from them come all persons who are on the earth now. We are all part of one big family, and we've all come from the line of Noah. As Paul uh, put it, I've quoted this a couple times in Acts 17 when he's on Mars Hill, God hath made of one blood all nations of men. 
Given that all humanity came from one household, it is not surprising to learn that they shared in a common language. Now, we don't know what that language was. There are different arguments about that. But they shared in a common language. And this is declared in verse 1 of Genesis 11. As it says, and the whole earth was of one language. It's, the word there is literally lip, of one lip, and of one speech. And so it tells us that in this earliest uh, post-flood world, there was one language and one speech. And because of this, there was no doubt uh, these coming from one household there was incredible unity even among these fallen human beings due to this common family origin and this common language. As the descendants of Noah continued to multiply, and remember, God had given them a command when they came out of the ark. If you go back and look at Genesis 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And that's repeated in Genesis 9, verse 7. And you, be ye fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. So God had blessed them. He had commanded them. And so over time, uh, those who came from Noah, they expanded in all directions upon the earth. And we uh, get to hear an account of this sort of in retrospect because it's already been laid out for us in Genesis 10. How... In verse 2 it says, It came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And so this gives us the setting for what we're going to read about regarding the Tower of Babel. Now Moses had mentioned back in Genesis 10 in the Table of Nations when he was listing the line, the descendants of Ham via Cush, he had mentioned one named Nimrod. You look back at uh, chapter 10 and uh, verse 8. Nimrod, who, be, who began to be a mighty one in the earth, who was, verse 9, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And we're told uh, there in verse uh, 10 that he went in the land of Shinar and how he began, Nimrod began a kingdom at Babel. And so Nimrod was one of the founders of this city that is going to be spoken of uh, in Genesis 11, where this city and this tower were, were built. Genesis 11 is going to expand upon this brief note that's written in retrospect and provide a greater detail for us to describe the momentous events that transpired in this place that would have such a lasting impression upon all humanity. In the beginning of verse 3 of chapter 11, we read of those persons who were there in the land of Shinar, and they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And so we learn here uh, about them uh, developing this capacity to, to use bricks for building and we saw earlier in Genesis, if you remember this, we saw various points where there were descriptions of mankind after the fall uh, having uh, particular gifts and, and intelligences and capacities so that they might master various technologies and trades. And so God had given to mankind, made in his image, special intelligence, unique skills. We don't find you know, animals building brick houses or brick buildings. God has given a special sort of uh, ability, architectonic ability to human beings to create things, to build things. And we see this at play here. Remember back in Genesis 4.17, Cain had built a city and named it after his son. Uh, remember in Genesis chapter 4, verse 20, that Jabal from Cain's line, dwelt in tents and raised cattle. He was skilled in animal husbandry. Remember in Genesis 4, verse 21, Jabal's brother Jubal was the father of all such as handled the harp and the organ 
mankind after the fall developed music and became skilled musicians, knowing how to build musical instruments and how to play them and to, and to make music. Tubal Cain, according to uh, Genesis 4.22, in Cain's line was an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron, one who could work with metals and construct tools and uh, use them as probably weapons of war and also uh, you know, items for cultivating the earth and building things. So the earliest men possessed, as men do today, great intelligence and skill in building and technologies. The question is whether they would use those skills humbly to honor and glorify God or whether they would use those skills to glorify and exalt themselves. Here, Moses tells us that in the land of Shinar, they mastered the craft of brick making and brick laying. They were not dwelling in tents, but in sturdy and durable structures that could also, with such strength and steadiness, be used to build even higher story upon story. The anthropologists and the archaeologists still today, when they're doing digs and studying cultures in various places in the world, they look for one of the signs of so-called development is the ability to build a, a two-story building, a third-story building, showing advances in technology. And so they were, they were mankind was, was learning in, in knowledge and skill. Moses continues in the second half of verse 3 and says, And they had brick for stone and slime. Remember, I never knew the word slime was in the KJV. It is an approved word, slime. Um, I guess uh, I haven't been around much bricklaying, but don't they call the mortar, they call it mud usually, don't they get some mud? I don't know, maybe they call it slime. Um, the, the scholars tell us that that word is also a word that's used to mean uh, bitumen or pitch, like the, the pitch that was used uh, in the, the basket that Moses was placed in. So they developed this technology, not just stacking the stones up, but having this mortar to, 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 to cause the stone to fit together and to build these uh, structures. Now, the mention here of the fact that they gained this Skill in bricklaying, however, if you know the Bible well, and I'm not sure we're meant to see this or not, but when I read through it, I thought about it. Maybe some of you have. For the people of Israel, this whole brick-making trade has a foreshadowing of something that's yet to come, doesn't it? Because when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, what were they given the task of doing? making bricks and you can read about that in exodus chapter 1 verses 13 through 14 where it says the egyptians in verse 14 of exodus 1 made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field and so maybe there's a little foreshadowing here maybe maybe they're going to use the skill for bad ends and sinful ends, and they'll be paying for it in later generations as enslaved brick builders for Pharaoh. Of course, later Moses would press Pharaoh to let his people go, and what would Pharaoh do? He would say, well, you can make the bricks without straw. You can gather straw for yourselves, and you can make the brick without straw. You see that in Exodus 5. There's a foreshadowing here of servitude and suffering due to sin. Moses continues, if you look at Genesis 11, verse 4, reporting that these men in the land of Shinar uh, said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower. The mention of a tower likely indicates that they thought to defend themselves. That's why you built a tower, to give you a way to look and see the enemy coming. So they thought to build a tower, probably to defend themselves. Perhaps this indicates that they were not depending upon the protections and the provisions of the Lord. The one who had kept them from the flood. Now they say, we need to take care of ourselves. We need to build our own city. We need to build our own tower. Take care of ourselves. 
Perhaps they doubted that the Lord could and would watch over them, and so they felt like they had to take matters into their own hands. Moses adds in verse 4 of this tower that its top, they built it so that its top may reach unto heaven. Some have compared this tower to the ziggurats, the archaeological remains of these uh, temples and buildings that were built in various cultures in the ancient Near East. Some, of course, have seen spiritual significance in this description, trying to build this ever higher building that reaches uh, up to the highest heights, up to the heavens, and maybe that was meant to be metaphorically just some high, lofty tower. And it indicates that these men literally had lofty visions of what their status would be. They thought that the sky was the limit for them. They could lift themselves up by their own ingenuity and labors unto heaven, into the abode or realm of God himself. And so the Tower of Babel becomes a picture a spiritual picture, spiritual drawing, drawn with a Holy Spirit pencil of man's pride and man's arrogance. In the scriptures, we often read of a contrast between God who is in heaven and man who is on earth. Consider in Psalm 115, verse 16, it says, The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. Consider also Solomon's admonition in the book of Ecclesiastes concerning worship when he wrote in Ecclesiastes 5.2, Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. See, this is, there's a, a spatial presentation of a spiritual reality here. They're trying to usurp their place, their place as men and lift themselves up to be in the place of God. There's a sense of men leaving their rightful station or standing in life and attempting to put themselves in the place of God. This was a similar error to that of the fallen angels who are described in Jude 6, which kept not their first estate, as Jude puts it, but left their habitation. So Jude says in Jude 6, God hath reserved them in everlasting chains unto darkness, under the judgment of the last day. Here, it's not the fallen angels, but it is mankind who is leaving, attempting to leave his first estate. Moses continues his report of their words in, uh, at the end of verse 4, uh, as they say, And let us make us a name. Let us make us a name. Well, it was God who created man. It was God who gave him his, his name who gave the name Adam and the name uh, Eve uh, through them uh, to one another. He gave them their identity, but now they want to take that task independently, autonomously upon themselves. They want to be independent from God. They want to rule, be a rule under themselves. There's also probably some meaning in the fact that they wanted to have a name for themselves. There's some meaning in that God would, would be called often by the faithful over the generations simply as the name, Hashem. Or as Paul uh, will refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, he was given the name that is above every name. Now they want to take a name an identity for themselves that is apart from God, without God. And they claim they want to do this for noble purposes. If you look at verse 4, let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. 
They thought that human unity and human solidarity could only come about as the result of their labors and their works. Again, this is the pride of man, and it continues to echo in the slogans of every political party and every humanistic organization which thinks that the preservation of humanity depends upon them and not upon their creator. Fallen man, after the flood, is acting little different than fallen man before the flood. And so in verse 5 we read, And the Lord, all capitals, Lord, that's Jehovah, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. Now we need to recognize that there is what we call the language of accommodation here. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He doesn't need to come down, but it's saying this in a way that we can understand it. We have to go to some place to see something. And what it means is God was, 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 was fully aware of what they were doing. And so it says here, he, again, he came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And this is interesting because we've seen this type of thing in the past. Remember in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, uh, it says in Genesis 3.8 that the Lord God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Remember in Genesis 4, when Cain uh, struck down his brother, righteous Abel, it says that the Lord came and began to interrogate Cain and said, where is Abel, thy brother? And when the wickedness of man had spiraled to ever lower depths at the time of Moses, we read in Genesis 6, 5, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What we're being taught here, even in that little simple verse in Genesis 11:5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, what we're being taught here is that the actions of sinful men here on earth never go unnoticed by God. He may be quiet for a season. He may give men over to their own devices and inclinations. But there also always comes a time when he arrives to inspect the cities and the towers that we have built and erected. There comes a time when the Lord comes to inspect to view, to visit. And then may think, oh, there's God, there's a God, he's silent. He's not said anything to me. But there will come a time when we will make he will make himself known. He will make himself present. In verse 6, then, Moses, this is really fascinating. Moses takes us into the counsels of the Almighty God Himself so that we might, we might hear the deliberations within the counsels of God Himself. And again, as we read this, we need to understand that Scripture is being accommodated to us. God is speaking here through His servant Moses in ways that with our human limitations, we might be able to understand it, just as a, just as a parent might lisp or do baby talk to a child. We're being told this in ways that we can understand the deliberations within uh, the, uh, the, the, the sovereign God. And so we read in verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they, they have all one language. Well, he says, behold, the people is one, but we should not think that that is meant to be a positive statement. It may well mean, and I think it does, they are one in their fallen nature. 
They are one in their decision to, in their pride, cast up this city and this tower. They are one in that they, that they lean on their own understanding. And they are one in their common language. They have one language, but indeed it is the language of sin. It is the language of, of going against the will of God, defaming God, defaming one another. And then he adds, if you look at verse 6, and this they begin to do. They are beginning to do uh, this act of arrogance, casting up this city and this tower. They, they're beginning to think that they can leave their station on earth as mere men and invade the realm of heaven as sinful men. And so the Lord continues, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. In other words, if I, it's as if God says, if I do not intervene now and humble them, their pride will make them even bolder in acting in accordance with the imagination of their thoughts, of the thoughts of their heart, which, as he said in Genesis 6-5, which are only evil continually. Can you imagine? Sometimes we look around and we see sinful things in this world and we're, we're discouraged and maybe disgusted with it. But can you imagine how bad things would be if God did not intervene and restrain evil and hold back evil? He's doing it all the time. Things aren't as bad as they might be. Because there's the restraining hand of God. And we see that here in verse 6. The Lord, therefore, justly and righteously determines to humble the pride of sinful men. And Moses reports to us the voice of God in verse 7. As God says within his own, his own self, go to... Let us go down. Go to let us go down. Let's pause there for a moment. Let us go down. Well, we believe in one God, right? The one true God. What does it mean here when God speaks in the first person plural? Let us go down. We've seen this before, haven't we? Remember in Genesis 1.26 when God made man? We read there, and God said... Let us make man in our image. And what is this? What we saw in Genesis 1.26, what we see here, go to, let us go down. This is a whisper of the doctrine of the Trinity. That one God in three persons from all eternity is speaking. And this also hints at what has been called the doctrine of the inseparable operations of the divine persons. What one person does, all do. Let us go down. And so the triune God determines to condescend to sinful men and to confound or confuse their language. And so I look again at verse 7, go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. When we transition from verse 7 to verse 8, we move from the expression or the articulation of the purposes of God in verse 7 to the fulfillment of those purposes in time, in space and time, through His mighty acts or deeds. And so he articulates what he's going to do in verse 7. And then in verse 8 we read, So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city, or they stopped building the city. And what we're being taught here in that transition from verse 7 to verse 8 is that what the Lord decrees and declares he is faithful to fulfill and to accomplish. 
what he decrees, he accomplishes. And so, in verse 8, again, the Lord scattered them abroad. The God of the Bible is a God who scatters his enemies. He's a God who scatters the vain imaginations of sinful men. In Psalm 68, verse 1, it says, Let God arise. Let His enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate Him flee before Him. Moses says they left off to build a city. There's a reminder here that no task of man, no sinful intention of man is ever completed unless the Lord permits it. If He does not permit it, it will not be done. And then Moses concludes with this insight in verse 9. Therefore, is the name of it called Babel. That's where we get the idea of the, the city of Babel, the tower of Babel, and this place where there was this tower, and the place where it was, they were confused in their language, and this wasn't completed. They had intended to build a tower which would reach up into heaven, they had the vain imagination for this, but God intervened, confused them, and, and they left off the work. One commentator points out that the Hebrew word for confusion is balal. We would uh, transliterate it B-A-L-A-L. -A -L. And there's a play on words most likely here that, that the place was called Babel. Babel becomes balal. Babel becomes confusion. This commentator also notes that Babel literally means gates of God. And so may reflect the people's desires to build a tower that rose to the very gates of heaven, underscoring their arrogance and false self-confidence. And with verse 9, second half of verse 9, Moses continues that he called the name of it Babel because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth and from thence, from that time, from that moment, did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. And this is repeating what he had said in verse 8. Uh, what he said there is, becomes a reality as it's recorded again in verse 9. This is the beginning of what we could call the post-flood world that we know today. One in which there are many nations which are divided by their distinctive languages. And what the insight we're being given is that these different languages were meant to humble the pride of man and so... Maybe every time you use Google Translate, every time you have to turn on the closed captions to listen to something that's in a foreign language, or every time you have to struggle to learn a language, whether you're learning Spanish or Hebrew or Greek or Latin or French or whatever it is, you know, the old saying is that Children have no problem learning any language, right? They're, if you're born in China, you speak Chinese. If you're born you know, in Hungary, you grow up you, there, you speak Hungarian and so forth. If you grow up uh, in Virginia, you'll probably speak English, right? Um, some form of it. Um, but every time you have to learn some language is not your mother tongue, you might think in the back of your mind, well, this is here because of man's pride. This is, a, this is a part of what God imposed upon mankind to humble them and to remind them that they are not God. It's yet another swatting down of the pride of man. The flood was that. The flood had swatted down the pride of man, but men's pride didn't stop. And so here's another swatting down of the pride of man and yet, we also see that the Lord God showed mercy. And this takes us to the second part of our text, verses 10 through 32. And I'll repeat 
uh, what I started off the first part with. At the times when men show themselves most miserable, God shows himself most merciful. Remember, God had already purposed a plan of redemption. It's first preached or proclaimed in Genesis 3.15. From the seed of the woman will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will be crushed and that servant will be bruised. And God, despite the Tower of Babel, despite the flood, despite the Tower of Babel, God is persisting to work out his plan and to fulfill his decree. From the line of Shem will come the Messiah. And he will come also through the seed of Abraham. And so the second half of our passage is another genealogy like we saw in Genesis 10, like we saw back in Genesis 5. And it's another listing of ten generations. We saw this back in Genesis 5 from Adam through Seth uh, to Noah. Ten generations. Now there are going to be ten more generations that are going to go from Shem all the way to Abram. And this is the beginning of the line from which will come the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's broken into two parts. Verses 10 through 26 bring us from Shem to a man named Terah. And then the second part will be from Terah to Abraham or Abram in verses 27 to 32. Let's briefly look, if we can skim over, look at these genealogies. It starts off in verse 10 with, remember the, the Teledot, the generations. These are the generations of Shem. The same language that we saw in Genesis 10.1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Now, uh, here in, in 11 verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Um, and so it says, Shem was 100 years old and begat Arphadax two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he begat Arphadax 500 years and begat sons and daughters. Remember that from Genesis 5? that often in those lists it ended with they begat sons and daughters, beginning with Adam himself. Then from Arphadax in verse 12, he lives 530 years, he begets a man named Salah. And some of you maybe are familiar with the genealogy that is found in the, in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 3.36, where it mentions uh, a, another person in between uh, uh, Arphadax and Salah who's named Canaan, and most likely Salah was the grandson here of our products. And so uh, sometimes that happens in these genealogies that will skip from, from a father to a son. And so he, uh, when he was 400, uh, lived yet 403 years after that, and he begat sons and daughters. Look at verse 14 Salah lived 30 years and begat Eber. Eber, we've, we've seen before in the previous line, if you look back. In Genesis 10, verse 25, he is the father of the Hebrews. And then Salah lived after he begat Eber 403 years and begat sons and daughters. And now Eber, if you look at verse 16, lived 430 years and begat Peleg. And you might remember back in Genesis 10 and verse 6 that Eber actually had two sons, uh, but we're only following the line of the son through Peleg. We're not following all the sons. We're following a special line, a line that's been written by God, drawn by God, as he's bringing forth his Messiah from this line. Verse 17, And Abraham lived after he begat Peleg 430 years and begat sons and daughters. And verse 18, Peleg lived 30 years and begat Reu. And Peleg lived after he begat Reu 209 years and begat sons and daughters. And Reu lived two and thirty years and begat Serug. Verse 21, and Reu lived after he begat Serug 207 years and begat sons and daughters. And Serug lived 30 years and begat Nahor. And uh, Serug lived after he begat Nahor 200 years and begat sons and daughters. Verse 24, and Nahor lived nine and twenty years and begat Terah. And Terah is going to be a turning point. Verse 25, and Nahor lived after he begat Terah 119 years and begot sons and daughters. And now, verse 26, the end of this first part of the 
of this line, and Terah lived 70 years and begat three sons are mentioned, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, just as Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, from them all humanity. Now Terah has three sons in this line of the Messiah that's being listed. Of course, the, the line is going to only go through one of them. It's going to be Abram who's listed first, just as Shem is listed first among the sons of Noah. And so with verse 27 to verse 32, we begin the last leg of the journey of this chapter. As it begins in verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And we also read here that Haran begat Lot. And if you know the biblical story, you know that Lot is going to be the nephew who's going to accompany Abram as he enters into the land of Canaan. We're told in verse 28 that one of the three brothers, Haran, died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And then in verse 29, the two brothers are left. And now it tells us of them taking wives. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. As we've noted, we'll see this later in Genesis when we return to the series. And originally, they have the names Abram and Sarai, and later they will be given new names, Abraham, the father of nations, uh, Sarah, the mother of nations. They'll have those names given to them to be the matriarch and the patriarch. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, apparently the daughter of the brother who had died. And some may ask about that, as we saw with Cain earlier. When men were few, God allowed close marriages, and maybe there was even a sense of something like a Levirate marriage here to take care of this daughter of Haran. But when mankind expanded, God forbade these types of close marriages. We see this in Leviticus chapter 18. And then it says uh, that, that Haran was not only the father of Milcah, but also of someone named Iscah. And then in verse 30, it says, But Sarai was barren, she had no child. This introduces a great theme we'll see later in Genesis. This threatens the covenant. If the covenant's going to come through Abraham and through Sarah, if Sarah is barren, how is the covenant going to continue? How will this threaten the, the coming of the Messiah? And we'll see that'll be a, a great theme in Genesis to come. It's introduced here. Verse 31, And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran, a place, not the sun, and dwelt there. And so there's sort of a, a beginning of the migration to the land of Canaan. They go part of the way. And it ends, verse 32, and the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in, in Haran. So this chapter ends with the obituary of Terah. Terah died in Haran. And we might say that it ends with a cliffhanger. Okay, the Tower of Babel. And, but there's hope for the Messiah to come, the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15. God will raise up a deliverer who will crush the head of Satan. But we get to the end of this, and he's not on, yet on the horizon. And it ends with uh, the wages of sin is death. Terah died in Haran. Well, friends, we work through the chapter. I said that Genesis 11 ends with a cliffhanger. Abram is in Haran. He's got a barren wife. He's got an orphan nephew. And we've got to peek. Let's, can we peek just a little bit ahead? Look at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. It says this to a man who can't have children. I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You saw this caps off Genesis 10 and 11? These 70 nations, 
divided geographically, spread to the isles, divided by their languages. But then there's a promise through Abram, through Abraham, there will come one who will be a blessing to all of these nations. Of course, what he's talking about is Christ. The Tower of Babel, to go back to Genesis 11, shows the confusion and destruction that results from human sin and human pride. And sadly, it didn't stop. It didn't stop at the time of the Tower of Babel. We can still see this today. Men building their cities and their towers. We can see it in various displays of man's pride, his hubris trying to lift himself up into the heavens, whether it's through trying to say that he can make a sovereign choice over when a life ought to end, euthanasia. Or he can make a sovereign choice when a pregnancy needs to be discontinued, abortion. Or man can make his own decisions about what gender he is. I'll lift myself up into the heavens and make my own autonomous decision about these things. And sadly, friends, it's not just about things like that. That's easy to take pot shots at those things. You can hear that on Fox News. You know what? What really hits home is that I do that. You do that. We want to live autonomously. We want to make our own decisions. We want to throw off God and throw off His Word. And we want to go our own way. And it doesn't have anything to do with any of those hot button issues. It has to do with our hearts. Man wants to rise up into the heavens, take God off his throne. And so God confounds us. God confounds us. But friends, out of the rubble, and the unfinished construction site that is Babel and the tower, out of the rubble of those bricks and slime that are left there, everything that's unfinished, there's a straight road that comes out of that city. There's a line that comes out of that city. It comes from Shem. It leads to Abram. And eventually it will lead to Christ. You know how the book of Matthew begins? The first gospel? It begins the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of Abraham. From the confusion of the nations and the confusion of languages, there would come in the fullness of time one unified people who will claim one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And they will speak one language, even if here on earth they speak different languages. But they will speak one language, the language of faith. And they will call upon one name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul will write of them in Galatians 3. For as many of you as have, been, as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. <laughs> Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. The only hope for unity for fallen man is the one God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer.
Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for thy word and for the unity that we have in Christ. That Babel has been overcome. Confusion has been overcome by truth. And life has come through the death of Christ on the cross and his glorious resurrection so that we can speak the one language of faith and we praise him. And so give us that unity, uh, that new life that only comes through Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.